Now, would you turn the next page to your study outline? And as you do, let me welcome those of you that are joining us online. We are so glad uh, that you're joining us for our study here today. Also want to welcome our friends in uh, Kalispell, Montana, uh, First Baptist Kalispell, as well as those at First Baptist Church in Arco, Idaho. We are so glad that you're joining us for our study as well. Now, something I want to say before we get into our, our study today is I want to make a prophecy And I hereby make this prophecy that if the words I'm about to preach are true, may the sun be blotted out from the sky uh, tomorrow from nine till noon. (laughs) Now, Okay, now if you have no idea what I'm talking about, you're gonna be so impressed tomorrow. You're gonna be like, where is that sermon outline? Where is that sermon? I got got a hold of that. Uh, You know, an interesting note, uh, the the eclipse here tomorrow is gonna be at 60 or 70%. But our satellite, uh, the, the loca- sister church, our sister church, uh, where the services or worship is uh, held and where uh, we have our messages that are there on video at our sister church, First Baptist Church at Arco, it is in the direct path of the total eclipse. It's right next to Idaho Falls. And so it is in the, the path of totality. And so uh, they were telling us, I preached there a few weeks ago, Kimberly and I and the family were there, and I preached, and they were telling us that they are expecting like Woodstock kind of crowds uh, coming in. Tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people are going to be camping out there, uh, right there at Arco, and it is going to be absolutely uh, remarkable. So at any rate, uh, we'll see if that comes true today. Somebody said online that people are saying, what if it's just a big joke? But it is not a joke. It is going to happen. It's not like a weather forecast. And so we're looking forward to that tomorrow. Now, as you look at your study outline, you see that we are going to start a three-part series, a little short three-part series to finish out the summer, and then we're going to start a new series after Labor Day. And it's based on John 14, verse 6, where the Bible says, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so what we're going to do this Sunday is talk about Jesus the way. We're going to talk about Jesus the truth. And then on Labor Day weekend, we'll talk about uh, Jesus, the life, and then we'll start a new series after Labor Day. Now, the most controversial word in the Bible, the thing that offends people about followers of Christ more than anything else is this one little word, the. This is what makes us offensive. This is what turns us uh, people off to Christianity more than anything else, this little word, the. Uh, if this word were a, we'd have no problem. Jesus is a way to God. Cool. We're all kind of figuring that out together. That's cool. Uh, He is a truth among many truths. Oh, that's cool. I can handle that. He's a life. Uh, there, There are many ways to come to the Father, not just through Jesus. If we taught that, people would not have that much of a problem. But the offense, the major offense, there are others, but the major offense of Christ's followers is that little word, the. Now, the first thing to notice is that it's Jesus that said it. We didn't make it up. And sometimes people will say, oh, you Christians, you're so insecure, your eagles are so fragile that you have to think that you're right and everybody else is wrong. Now, there may be some Christians like that, but I've never met them. I don't know of them in our church. As a matter of fact, in many ways, it's an inconvenient truth. Apologies to Al Gore. Uh, This is the ultimate inconvenient truth. This makes our life harder as followers of Christ. This makes it more difficult 
uh, as a church. It has practical ramifications if we believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. I mean, take our budget. We're beginning to form our budget now uh, for the coming year. I just had lunch with the former executive pastors, Dennis Endert and Peter Torrey, uh, with our new chief operating officer, uh, Pamela Barden, and we had lunch, and, and boy, I would ask the three of them, boy, how much easier would life be if we had an extra million dollars every year? Because a million dollars is about what we give to missions and, and to outreach. Now, really, our entire church is about outreach. Our entire budget is about outreach. The church is the only organization that exists for the benefit of its non-members. And so the thing that keeps us thriving as a church is we always want to have an outward orientation to those that are not currently following Jesus. That's what we exist for, not just to make ourselves comfortable and coddled until we go to heaven. Okay? So, but, but I, I would ask uh, all of us how much easier life would be if we didn't give a million dollars away to reach people for Christ uh, for outreach. So let me ask you a question. Do you ever see any buildings around the campus that could use a little extra paint? You ever see that? Uh, how about in here? How many of you think we could use new carpeting in here, all right? How many of you would like theater-style seating where you're set with a nice cup holder there? All right, I mean, I mean the list just kind of goes on and on. Uh, higher salaries for the pastors, that would be an awesome thing. You know, you just kind of go through the list. Okay, if, but the problem is, this is not A, this is the. And so as a result, even in our giving and our finances and the whole orientation of our church. I mean, how, how much easier would it be if I'm not always bugging you about your oikos? If I don't constantly say ad nauseum, God's assignment to you is to go to heaven and take your oikos with you. Oikos is the Greek word for household, the 8 to 15 in your sphere of influence. And we never, we never plan something for Christian entertainment. We were just talking about that among the pastors the other day. We don't want to do anything for Christian entertainment. Everything is meant to be a bridge to our oikos. So the sisters uh, speaking team that's coming here uh, in September, that's not just for Christian entertainment. Why bother if it is? It's to, for you to invite somebody in your oikos to come and then to be uh, connected with Jesus. That's what it's all about. And so how much easier would life be for all of us if this was A instead of the? Let me ask you a question. You know, and by the way, don't raise your hands on this. It'll hurt my feelings. Raise your hands in your heart. How many of you get tired of the changes we do around here every once in a while? How many of you get weary of change? Well, the whole reason we do that is because this says the rather than a. You see, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. But the culture we're trying to reach is constantly changing. The people we're trying to reach for Christ are always changing. And so as a church it, it's hard, and I want you to know, my life would be easier as a pastor, and, and all of our lives would, would be easier as a church. If we could just say, you know what, let's just spend all of our money on ourselves, let's just never change anything, make it as comfortable as we can until we, all, until we get to heaven. Let's just make the path as easy and as comfortable as we can. But here's the problem. It doesn't say A, it says the. And therefore, as a church, and it's the reason we're almost unique in American, maybe even world church history. 147 years is because we've been willing to constantly have an outward orientation to reach the lost, to, to reach the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son, as Pastor Eric was preaching last Sunday, to give in that way, 
to sacrifice in that way, to be willing, which is the hardest sacrifice, I believe, to change in that way, to reach a world and a culture for which Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Now, along with that in salvation, and we'll talk more about that next Sunday, uh, is moral absolutes that are written on our heart. The way of God, the moral absolutes that are written on our hearts. Uh, Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 19. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. Verse 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. When you look at a starry night, um, we spent much of our sabbatical, uh, Kimberly and I love national parks, and, and we always joke that we have a funny um, growth plan as a church with regard to satellites. We want to have satellites that are near to national parks. So it works out really well. Uh, so then when I visit them and preach at them, uh, Arco is right next to Yellowstone and Kalispell is right next to Glacier National Park. Uh, so we're looking for some near Zion and, and uh, some there, you know, some of the other national parks. I'm just kidding about that, by the way. God just worked it out that way. But when you just spend weeks camping and, 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 and in the national parks, you just realize there's got to be a designer behind the design. You just look up to a starry sky. There's got to be a designer behind the design. That's why people are traveling from all over to be in the path of the total eclipse. I didn't even know the eclipse was going to happen until our second Sunday, the, the, the second day, we're on sabbatical. We're having dinner in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And we get to talking to the waiter. He's telling us about the eclipse. And I'm like, what eclipse? I haven't heard of this. Uh, my goodness, what, what are you talking about? And he says that in Jackson, a hotel room that would normally go for $150 or $200 the night before the eclipse and the night after eclipse is going for $800 a night. And they've been booked up completely for over a year. People are traveling from all around. Why? Because they say that experiencing a total eclipse is a life-changing experience. There's this sense of the awe of, that, of the design of the universe And something within our hearts, Paul says, tells us that we are now without excuse because we understand there's got to be a designer behind that design. One of my favorite verses, and we didn't put it in the study outline, but let me put it up here now. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11. He, God, has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. He has stamped the human heart with a sense of eternity. That's why you're not satisfied with the stuff of this life. That's why the stuff of this life doesn't give you ultimate satisfaction because you were made for eternity. And so only eternal things will ultimately satisfy. You were made for eternity. You've had eternity stamped on your heart. Uh, Paul goes on in chapter two, verses 14 and 15. Indeed, when Gentiles, and by Gentiles it means non-Jews, people who didn't have the Bible, at that time the Old Testament, So when people who don't have the Bible, who do not have the law, the Bible, do by nature, just just instinct, it's just on their hearts, things required by the law, they are a law for themselves even though they do not have the law. Uh, Verse 15, they show that the requirements of the law, that is certain people, we, we know certain things are right and certain things are wrong, and it's just stamped on our heart, are written on their hearts. Their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts, sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. 
Now, this is a, a sermon for another time. It's a series of sermons for another time. But I just find it fascinating how when you go back into almost every culture of antiquity and prehistoric times, um, when you go back to every culture in the world today, everybody has this, this certain things that they know are right and wrong within their, within their culture. There are certain truths that they just simply know even though they've never experienced the teachings uh, of God's word. Let me give you an example. A few days ago, uh, just a few days ago, my son, my son-in-law, Aaron, and my, my daughter, uh, Leah, they said, Dad, come over here. Come over here. And I had our, our little granddaughter asleep in my arms. The big joke in our family is all the babies fall asleep in my arms. All I have to do is start preaching, and they're out like a light, and boom, they're gone. And so, so I come over there, and they said, Dad, Dad, you're going you're gonna to love this one. And it was an historical marker. And the historical marker said this. It was about King Kamehameha, uh, who was the founder, basically kind of like the George Washington, the first ruler of the kingdom of Hawaii. He was a tremendous leader. He's the first one, like George Washington, that kind of organized the Hawaiian islands. And, um, and he died in 1819, this marker said. And when he died, his widow said, we're going to go back and no longer follow the most recent legends. We're going to go back to the most ancient of the legends. And the most recent legends said that there were many gods. But the most ancient legend talks about one god who was made up of three entities. Does that sound familiar? And they said, we're going to go, and we're going to now follow that one god who's, who's three and one and one and three. One god, but three entities. And she said, along with that, the most recent legends have called for human sacrifice. And so they were doing human sacrifice until 1819 in the Hawaiian Islands. But they said the most ancient ones say that it's wrong to do human sacrifice, wrong to take a human life. And so she abolished human sacrifice. And two weeks after she did this, the missionaries arrived. You see, general revelation, that's what we call it. When you experience creation, when you know what's in your heart is right and wrong, that's called general revelation. Gets us so far, but then, of course, we do need missionaries. We do need to share Christ with our friends. Because it only takes you so far until you need specific revelation, which we find within God's word. And so God had prepared the people of, of Hawaii for now God's word brought the specific revelation to build on the general uh, revelation. Uh, Joshua 1 verse 8 talks about specific revelation. Keep this book of the law, that's the Bible, always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it, then you'll be prosperous and successful. Now, when we reject the law of God written on our hearts, when we reject what we know, what we know, uh, when we reject the feeling, the sense that there must be a designer behind the design of the universe, when we reject God's word, when we have exposure to it, um, we reject absolute truth, and it opens the door to what we refer to as relativism. And the best definition of relativism is in Judges 21, verse 25. And I'm using the old-fashioned King James Version because I love the last phrase of it. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Now, the king in Israel, his job, his main job, was to make sure that people knew God's word, the Bible, and that they practiced it. They put it into action. That was his main job, and there was no king in Israel. Every man and woman did that which was right in his or her own eyes. That's the best definition of relativism. 
where everybody just kind of does their own thing, where, where we just kind of make up truth as we go, and your truth is different than my truth, and there is no absolute truth that is separate from you and from me. Now, what is relativism? Uh, here's the definition by Gregory Kokel. When it comes to morals, that which is right and wrong, whether for group, society, or individuals, you do your, you do your thing, you do your own thing. Moral relativism holds that there are no universally valid moral principles. Number two, rather, all moral principles are valid relative to culture or individual choice. And the latest polls and surveys show that about 75% of Americans believe point number two. Number three, relativism does not require particular behavior that everyone in similar uh, moral situations should do. Uh, Subpoint under that, the words ought and should are ultimately meaningless. A second subpoint: everyone's morality is equal. No individual morality should be imposed on other people. Now, that all sounds so cool. It sounds so laid back. You do your thing, I'll do my thing. We're all cool about it. It sounds so Southern Californian, doesn't it? It sounds so Southern Californian. But the problem is, nobody lives that way except in the two most important areas of life. Two most important areas of life, questions of life, are this. Number one, how do you get to heaven? If there's a heaven, if there's an eternity, how do you prepare for it? And number two, how do you live on your way to it? How do you live a moral life on your way to heaven? If, there, if there's eternity, uh, how do I get there? How do I go to heaven? And number two, how do I live a moral life on my way to heaven? Those are the two most important questions you will ever deal with. And in every other area of life, we are objectivists, okay? We, we believe there's truth and error. We believe there's a right way of doing things and a wrong way of doing things. In every other area. But somehow, when it comes to the two most important questions, how to get to heaven and how to live on your way to heaven, how to live a moral life this side of heaven, all of a sudden we say, well, make it up on your own. You know, you figure it out, I'll figure it out. It's all cool. Now, nobody lives that way in the other areas of their life. Uh, How many of you, when you were driving here this morning, you got up this morning and said, you know what, just to spice things up a little bit, I'm going to drive on the left side of the road rather than the right side of the road going to church. Uh, Nobody said, you know what, just to add a little spice to to going to church today, I'm going to stop for green lights and drive through red lights. Nobody does that. When we got here and we began to sing the words, We put the words up there for everybody to sing, right? Pastor Jarrett didn't get up here and say, you know what, today we're gonna do something different. Everybody just sing your favorite song. And so some of you sang a song from Hillsongs and some sang some Chris Tomlin and some sang a Beatles song that's always been your favorite and some sang a Justin Bieber song. Chris, that was you, right? Chris Tichone, you were singing a Justin Bieber song, I'm sure, yeah. So everybody was just kind of singing their own song, what would that be? That would not be beautiful, that would be chaos. Uh, tomorrow, when you go to school, or when you go to work, nobody's gonna live that way. You students, when, when you go to school uh, this year, you're gonna be graded by whether you give the right answer or the wrong answer, at least in things like math and science. Maybe in certain other subjects like history or whatever, you might be able to have some leeway to share what your own truth is. But basically, in most subjects, there's a right way to do it, and there is a wrong way to do it. Um, just last week, we hosted the orientation for the medical students just starting out their medical education over at Western University. And this, this worship center was just filled with um, medical students. 
And I hope right now what they're being taught is that there is a right medicine to prescribe and a wrong medicine to be prescribed. I mean, one of my doctors graduated from Western University. I hope he was taught that use certain medications and avoid other medications. To go into surgery and not say his appendix needs to come out, Glenn's appendix needs to come out, but today I'm just feeling like cutting a foot off. You know, it just, it's in my mood today. No, engineers, um, Steve Albrigo, I don't know if Steve's at this service. Raise your hand, Steve, if you're here. Steve Albrigo is, a, is an engineer for SpaceX, and their goal is to put a colony on Mars. I guarantee you that Steve and the other engineers at SpaceX, there's a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. And if even one of them does it wrong out of thousands of decisions, that rocket's going to blow up 20 feet into the air. The only way we're going to get to Mars, SpaceX is going to get to Mars, is if we do it a right way rather than a wrong way. Um, Teachers that are going back to school tomorrow, you don't say, well, on Monday I'm going to teach that 2 plus 2 equals 4, but Wednesday I'm going to wake up and say, how about 2 plus 2 equals 5? And on Friday, 2 plus 2 equals negative 1. You don't do it kind of like how you feel in the moment. And so none of us live our lives that way. But somehow, when it comes to the two most important questions in life, how do you get to heaven? And how do you live a moral life on the way to heaven? All of a sudden now, we become relativists. Hey, whatever's cool for you, cool for me, make it up as you go along. So in contrast to relativism, moral objectivism holds that number one, A moral rule is true regardless of whether or not anyone believes it. It doesn't change with individuals or or cultures. I mean, I can sincerely believe with all my heart that the earth is flat. And I'm so sincere about it. And I'm so, believe it with all my heart. That doesn't change the fact that the earth is not flat. It's a sphere. Uh, Number two, we don't invent morality. We discover it, much like we might discover math principles. A subpoint under that is morality isn't created by personal conviction and it doesn't disappear when an individual or a culture rejects it. The second uh, subpoint that is under that is on this view, moral rules are frequently self-evident. Here's a little history quiz. Where have you heard that word before? Declaration of Independence written by Thomas Jefferson in the same way that mathematical truth is self-evident. Okay? Uh, that's, you've heard that before. Uh, we hold these truths. The uh, Declaration of Independence begins. Thomas Jefferson, a Virginian, wrote this. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. There are certain moral absolutes objectively written on our hearts That's what the framers of our country believed. Norman Geisler writes, the world is built on truth and operates on truth. That is why scientists can depend on the laws of nature that they've discovered. Science is only now discovering many of these laws which God used to create the world. There's an objective standard of truth outside of us and above us. There's a moral order to the universe just as there is a material or physical order. Truth is something that can be seen and understood. Slavery is clearly wrong, and setting people free is right. It is better to love someone than torture someone. It is better to build something than to destroy something. Torturing babies just for fun has been considered immoral throughout the world and throughout history. There are just certain things that are absolutely true. 
Uh, I love, if you didn't get a chance to read it, Pastor Shaw mentioned it earlier, but in, on page two there, uh, in your program, you'll see the statement that the Pomona pastors in prayer, that we, the pastors of Pomona, wrote in the aftermath of what happened in Charlottesville uh, last weekend. And, and I love that, that middle line that says, every human bears the image of God and should be treated with nothing less than the glory that God created them to be in the world. Without moral objectivism, there is no way to deal with racism. A relativist cannot condemn racism. There has to be an objective standard. Uh, Number three, a moral rule is universally binding in all relevantly similar cases, even though people choose to ignore it. Um, Multinational company is having people come in for an interview. And the first one, that uh, they have a mathematician, a statistician, and a salesman. And so they bring the first guy in, and they said, what, uh, mathematician, what's two plus two? Thinks about it for a minute, thinks, oh, maybe there's a trick question. But then he says, it's four. And they said, you're absolutely right, but you're not the guy for the job. And they have him leave. Then the statistician comes in and says, what's two plus two? Statistician thinks for a minute and says, well, it's a number somewhere between the number three and the number five. And they were impressed. Still not the guy for the job. They have him leave. Salesman comes in, says, what's two plus two? Without batting an eye, he says, it's whatever you want it to be. They hired him on the spot, okay? Salesman, don't be offended. My dad was a salesman, so we love our salesman. Uh, A moral rule, however, is universally binding in all similar cases. Dennis Prager writes, most of the problems with our culture can be summed up in the phrase, who are you to say? (laughs) Um, Peter writes in Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, for all people are like grass And what we believe morality to be on any given day is like grass as well. And all their glory is like the flowers of the field. All of our smartest thoughts, we're still not as smart as God. The grass, our personal opinions that come and go on a daily basis, withers and the flowers fall. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Let's finish up with relativism, seven fatal flaws. Uh, Flaw number one, relativists can't accuse others of wrongdoing. I might happily be a relativist until I go out to my car after the service is over. If a window is broken, I will no longer be a relativist. What jerk did this? Oh, I'm kind of judgmental, aren't I? My car is stolen, and we have a parking lot patrol. Thank you, those of you that serve in parking patrol ministry. You are reducing the odds that this will happen. But you go out there, and your car is stolen. Immediately, you're you're angry. I'm angry. Who took my stuff? Okay? Well, if you're a relativist, you can't accuse others of wrongdoing. Flaw number two, relativists can't complain about the problem of evil. You need an objective standard to say that the Holocaust was evil or wrong. Relativists can't do that. The most you can say about the Holocaust is that it was displeasing to a majority of the people on planet Earth. That's all you can get at. But that's not even right or wrong. That's just saying, hey, Hitler, survival of the fittest, he kind of actually did a pretty good job of trying to, trying to push his racial seed onto other people, you know? So hooray, Hitler. That's what you have to say. Uh, you need an objective standard to say that the whole Holocaust uh, was, was evil. Um, Adolf Hitler uh, has uh, written about this in Mein Kampf, which was his book, uh, My Struggle. And Darwinists, and by Darwinists, I mean those that believe 
um, that uh, there's only randomness in the universe. It's the philosophy of Darwinism, uh, which is separate from the science of Darwinism, but it's, it's, it's all part and parcel at times. And, and the philosophy of Darwinism is that we are all creatures of random chance, random cells experiencing random chance. You hear me say that all the time, don't you? And the beautiful thing about following Jesus is you have a purpose. We love that word so much we named our church after it. We're not random cells. We were purposefully put together. We are not experiencing random chance. God has a plan and a purpose for our lives. But if randomness, if Darwinists are right that morality has a natural source, then morality is not objective or absolute. For if there is no God and humans have evolved from the slime, then we have no higher moral status than slime because there is nothing beyond us to instill us with objective morality or dignity. The implications of this have not been lost on Darwinists and their followers. In fact, Adolf Hitler used Darwin's theory as a philosophical justification for the Holocaust. In his 1924 book, Mein Kampf, which in German means my struggle, he writes, if nature does not wish that weaker individuals should mate with the stronger, she wishes even less that a superior race should intermingle with an inferior one because in such cases all her efforts throughout hundreds of thousands of years to establish an evolutionary higher stage of being may thus be rendered futile. But such a preservation goes hand in hand with the inexorable law that it is the strongest and the best who must triumph and that they have the right to endure. He who would live must fight. He who does not wish to fight in this world where permanent struggle is the law of life has not the right to exist. Now, this has certain practical consequences that carry right up to the present time. Um, you know, many times uh, people talk about the Scopes trial of 1925, and there was a movie about it, and it was the whole heart of it was to kind of make fun of Christians and how uh, stupid and behind the times they were. But you know something that many people don't realize? Do you know that the high school biology textbook at the center of that debate, okay, and this was the heroic textbook that everybody said, you know, this is so much better than the Bible. Do you know that that textbook talked about five races of humanity and concluded that Caucasians are the highest of the five? Each one in order, five different types of people and one more inferior than the next one down through five, which directly contradicts God's word, the Bible, which says objectively that everyone is created in the image of God. All are sane at the foot of the cross. Now, it has practical ramifications. Again, Princeton, Professor Peter Singer. Now, this is not some whack job from the fringes. This is a professor at Princeton. He said that the life of a newborn baby is of less value than the life of a pig, a dog, or a chimpanzee. He believes that parents should be able to kill their newborn infants until they are 28 days of age. So you've got until they're 28 days of age to decide, are they perfect enough? Are they healthy enough? Do they fit into my lifestyle plans enough? And you can kill them if they're not. James Rachels is an animal rights philosopher. Now again, not a fringe person. He taught at Duke University. Most of his years, he taught at the University of Alabama. He taught that anyone with a disability should be used for lab experiments or for food, just like animals. Uh, younger professors, Randy Thornhill, professor of biology at University of New Mexico. Craig Palmer, a professor at the University of Missouri, recently wrote a book called Rape. 
in which they said that rape is, quote, a natural biological phenomenon that is a product of the human evolutionary heritage, just like the leopard spots and the giraffe's elongated neck. Now, this is the problem with relativism. It's like a river. You know how a river, as long as it stays to the riverbed, it's controlled, it has purpose, you can, make, you can dam it up, you can make electricity out of it, it has, has a purpose, it doesn't harm other people. But as soon as a river gets out of its riverbanks, no telling how far it'll go. Now the sky's the limit. It just, it just kind of goes as far as it'll, it wants to go. And the same thing is true with moral absolutes. If we keep it within the river of that which we know in our hearts to be right and wrong, if we keep it in the riverbed of God's word, it will bless people, it will protect people, it will not harm people, it will bring joy to people's lives. But as soon as it gets out of the riverbed and just goes wherever it wants to go, that's when it is most destructive. Uh, Number three, relativists can't place blame or accept praise They can't claim anything as unfair or unjust. Uh, Flaw number five, relativists can't improve their morality. You can kind of judge a moral system by who the natural results of that moral system are. Uh, For us, obviously, we get up every morning and say, I want to be more like Jesus than I was the day before. That's our moral standard is Jesus. But if you look at a human being, the end result of of, of a Christ-like life is, is Mother Teresa, but then you say, what's the end result of a relativist? What, what do you call a person that does in any given moment what they think to be true and what works for them personally? You know what you call that person? A sociopath. And their highest example is Adolf Hitler. And so the end result of relativism is Hitler. The end result of objectivism is Mother Teresa. You can judge a moral system by who are the heroes of that system, the results of that system. And then flaw number four, we can't hold meaningful moral discussions and we can't promote the obligation of tolerance. You know, the word tolerance has changed its definition in the last 20 years. It used to be tolerance was you you believe something, I believe something, I respect you for that belief, I don't shout you down if you try to express that belief, I, I don't try to kill you if you express that belief, but I don't necessarily believe that what you're saying is true. And so you take your truth, I take my truth, we put it out on the table and we wrestle together to figure out what ultimate truth is. But now in the last 20 years, the definition of tolerance has changed to now say that if I disagree with you in, if you disagree with me in any way, um, you are mean-spirited. And if I don't like what you have to say and if, and if I don't care for it, I have the right to shout you down and to consider you to be a mean-spirited person simply because you don't believe that my truth is equally valid to some other objective truth. And that's how it's changed. Now, you can read the remainder of the study outline, but let me set things up for next Sunday. So this week we talked about the way of of Jesus of moral absolutes. Next Sunday we're going to talk about the truth of Jesus that leads to salvation. And the title of my message next Sunday is The Top Ten Reasons We Know the New Testament Writers Told the Truth. Next Sunday, I I am so excited about next Sunday. I I can't wait to share it with you. I think if you've got a left-brained friend, this is a great Sunday to bring them to. If they're one that feels like they need evidence for following Christ, next Sunday is an awesome one to bring them to. The top 10 reasons we know the New Testament writers told the truth, and if they told the truth, then Jesus is the way to heaven, and he's also the truth that will lead us to heaven.